This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Ukrainian fighters holed up in a steel plant in the last known pocket of resistance inside the shattered city of Mariupol have ignored a surrender-or-die ultimatum from the Russians and continue to hold out against the capture of the strategically vital port. Mariupol has been the site of merciless seven-week-old siege that has reduced much of the city to a smoking ruin. Its fall would be Moscow's biggest victory of the war yet and free up troops to take part in a potentially climatic battle for control of Ukraine's industrial east. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now saying Russian troops in southern Ukraine have been carrying out torture and kidnappings, and he called on the world Sunday to respond. He said that there were torture chambers built there. He also said they abduct representatives of local government and anyone named visible to local communities. Zelensky said humanitarian aid has been stolen, creating famine. In occupied parts of uh, uh, two regions, he said the Russians are creating separatist states and introducing Russian currency, the ruble. Intensified Russian shelling of Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, has killed 18 people at least and wounded at least 106 in the last four days alone, according to Zelensky. On what is supposed to be Christianity's most joyful day, Pope Francis made an anguished Easter Sunday plea for peace in the senseless war in the Ukraine and, and other parts armed conflicts raging in the world and voiced worry about the risk of nuclear warfare. He said, may there be peace for war-torn Ukraine so sorely tried by the violence and destruction of this cruel and senseless war into which it was dragged. Uh, speaking from the central balcony of St. Peter's Square, there's more at voanews.com. This is VOA News. North Korea has test-fired a new type of tactical guided weapon designed to boost its nuclear fighting capability, according to state media on Sunday. A day before its chief rival, the United States and South Korea, begin annual drills at the North views as an invasion rehearsal. The 13th weapons test this year came amid concerns that North Korea may soon conduct an even larger provocation that may include a nuclear test in an effort to expand the country's arsenal and increase pressure on Washington and Seoul while denuclearization talks remain stalled. The official Korean Central News Agency said leader Kim Jong-un observed what it called the weapon's successful launch. He released photos showing a beaming Kim clapping his hands with military officers. KCNA said the weapons tested has a, a great significance in drastically improving the firepower of the front-line long-range artillery units, enhancing the efficiency in the operation of North Korea's tactical nukes and diversification of their firepower missions. Thousands of people in Shanghai who test positive for the coronavirus but have few or no symptoms are being ordered into quarantine centers and exhibition halls and other buildings. The move is part of an official effort to contain China's biggest coronavirus outbreak since the two-year-old pandemic began. Most of Shanghai was shut down starting March 28th after case numbers soared. The biggest quarantine center is in the National Exhibition and Convention Center which has uh, bids for 50,000 people. One resident says lights there are left on all night, making it hard to sleep, and she's yet to find a hot shower. A classified satellite for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office was launched into space from the state of California. 
The Enroll 85 satellite lifted off at 6.13 in the morning Sunday from Vandenberg Space Force Base aboard a two-stage SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Vandenberg says it was the first mission by the NRA to reuse a SpaceX rocket booster. The Falcon's first stage flew back and landed at the seaside base northwest of Los Angeles. The NRA and RO only described the Enroll uh, 85 satellite as a critical national security payload. Recapping our top story. Uh, Ukrainian fighters holed up in a steel plant in the last known pocket of resistance inside the shattered city of Mariupol have ignored a surrender or die ultimatum from the Russians and continue to hold out against the capture of the strategically vital port. There is more at voanews.com. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Monday, April 18th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the Ukrainian city of Mariupol on the brink of falling to Russian forces, but Kyiv vows to fight on. A win would give Moscow a crucial success following its failure to storm the Ukrainian capital and the sinking of its Black Sea flagship. Tension in Pakistan as former prime minister plans a second mega rally to protest his ouster. Pakistan is certainly heading towards some kind of a chaotic situation or unrest that could even turn bloody if there is no resolution to the situation. And the death toll from floods in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province hits 443, with 63 people missing. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The Ukrainian city of Mariupol remains on the brink of falling to the Russians after seven weeks under siege as Kiev vows to fight on. Associated Press correspondent Julie Walker reports. A win would give Moscow a crucial success following its failure to storm the Ukrainian capital and the sinking of its Black Sea flagship. Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmiel tells ABC News this week with George Stephanopoulos they're prepared to end the war through diplomacy if possible, but reject Russia's ultimatum to surrender. We will not leave our country, our families, our land, so we will fight absolutely till the end, till the win in this war. The capture of Maripol would free up Russian forces to to join an expected all-out offensive for control of the Donbass. I'm Julie Walker. The World Health Organization says a variety of crises are eroding the health of millions and blocking needed humanitarian aid in war-torn spots around the world. Lisa Schleier reports for VOA from Geneva. War, climate disasters, and COVID-19 are threatening global health and undermining the capacity to build and maintain economically viable and stable societies. These multiple crises are most pronounced in war-torn countries. Ukraine, a once thriving society, is now shattered. Since Russia invaded 51 days ago, thousands of civilians, including children, have been killed and injured. The World Health Organization has confirmed 100 19 attacks on healthcare personnel and facilities. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus says health services are severely disrupted, particularly in the east of the country, now the epicenter of the fighting. For the sake of humanity, I urge Russia to come back to the table and to work for peace. 
In the meantime, humanitarian corridors must be established so that medical supplies, food and water can be delivered and civilians can move to safety. On another front, the World Food Program says 4.6 million people in the embattled Tigray province of northern Ethiopia are suffering from acute hunger. Hundreds of thousands reportedly are on the verge of famine. The Ethiopian government called a humanitarian truce three weeks ago. Despite this, WHO chief Tedros says a blockade one of the longest in history, continues. Few life-saving supplies, he says, are reaching Tigray. In effect, the siege by the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces continues. To avert the humanitarian calamity and hundreds of thousands more people from dying, we need unfettered humanitarian access from those reinforcing the siege. Tedros warns the Horn of Africa and Sahel are at high risk of famine. He says conflict, years of drought, heavy flooding and COVID-19 have destroyed people's ability to cultivate the land, grow their crop and raise their cattle. He says many people are already starving and millions are on the move. He expresses concern about the impact this humanitarian crisis is having on people's health and on regional security. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Tension is rising in Pakistan ahead of a planned rally Thursday by ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan in the second largest city of Lahore. This after tens of thousands of his supporters joined the rally in Karachi on Saturday to protest against his removal from power. The government is coming under increased pressure to beef up security on the streets ahead of the rally, but analysts say that could trigger a wave of violent reaction from Khan's supporters. For more, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gaw. Intellectuals and commentators, politicians even, are definitely warning in their discussions in newspaper articles and TV channels that Pakistan is certainly heading towards some kind of a chaotic situation or unrest that could even turn bloody if there is no resolution to the situation and if Imran Khan, the former prime minister, continues to build this momentum of his rallies because he has clearly stated in his speeches that he is trying to conduct all these rallies peacefully, but he also warned the government not to take steps to corner him or his party in a way that he is forced to take other measures. So things are very volatile, very serious in Pakistan. What does ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan and his supporters want? One point agenda, and that is a general elections as early as possible. That is the one demand that Imran Khan has been making, and that is the only demand for which he has launched this public campaign, that he wants early elections so that the people of Pakistan, according to him, decide who is the deserving candidate to be ruling this country. Some analysts are saying the government is taking steps to deploy more policemen and other security agencies on the streets and important areas without having to go to the military. How effective is this strategy? The problem Pakistan faces is that they don't have enough police personnel in the country, in provinces, who 
can control this kind of a crowd that we have witnessed over the last one week that Imran Khan has addressed. Civilian security agencies, including police, may not be able to really contain outbreak of an unrest in the country. But whether there will be a situation where the military will be called in to help the civilian agencies to contain it, that will be a very serious situation because some analysts are saying that there are rifts within the military, it may not be totally baseless. You know, although it's difficult to directly gauge the mood of the military from inside because it's a very close institution and it's a very disciplined institution in Pakistan. But there have been repeated reports that low-ranking officials are really unhappy with the way Imran Khan was ousted from power. And there have been reports that commanders have been criticizing Army Chief General Kamar Javed Bajwa for not supporting Imran Khan against the opposition position when he was being ousted. So we are getting mixed signals, but God forbid if there is violence in Pakistan and if the military is called in to support the government, there's total uncertainty about what will be the outcome. The military has taken the unprecedented step of supporting the current prime minister against the ousted prime minister over his allegations that the United States is behind the plot to remove him. How significant is this when the military top brass says there is no evidence that that actually happened? It's a tricky situation. The only thing which military said that there was no U.S. conspiracy behind the former prime minister's ouster. But at the same time, the military acknowledged that in one of the recent meetings between the Pakistani ambassador in Washington and the State Department officials, the language that the U.S. State Department officials used was undiplomatic and it amounted to interference in Pakistan's internal politics. Now, that is a very serious acknowledgement on part of the military that whatever Imran Khan has been saying is not baseless. That gives weightage to what Imran Khan has been saying. And that's why the military has come under serious criticisms. That contradiction has basically given a lot of fuel or ammunition to Imran Khan supporters and aides that so whatever he has been saying, the military is actually indirectly confirming it. That's VOS Ayaz Gauss speaking with me from Islamabad. Central African Republic's first special criminal court opens next week to address what some legal experts say are, quote, heinous crimes, unquote, committed in the country. Human Rights Watch's Central African Director Lewis Marge tells Ricky Shryak that the court marks a milestone and provides new hope for fighting impunity. Look, this is a very historic moment for the Central African Republic, and this could be a historic moment for the region. The Special Criminal Court is the first hybrid judicial system in the Central African Republic, and we at Human Rights Watch feel that this court could actually serve as a model for other hybrid courts moving forward. This court represents the first chance for Central Africans to see justice on Central African soil in Bongi, the capital, since the Seleka took power in early 2013, but really since they started their reign of terror in late 2012. So this court has been something that we in the international civil society movement, but also, and I think more importantly, Central Africans who've been victim of serious crimes, this is something they've been waiting for for almost a decade. And to see this court actually becoming operational, um, to see it um, putting uh, alleged perpetrators of very serious crimes, and to show that this court demonstrates that the days of impunity for these serious crimes may be coming to an end, it's a significant step. 
that. And what were some of those efforts to make the court become a reality? Because I know there are significant hurdles um, when these uh, types of courts or types of judicial processes are tried to be put in place. Look, I, I have to say I was I was in Bongi in 2015 when this court was starting to be um, was starting to materialize, and I remember being pessimistic as to the feasibility of this court. The hurdles were uh, substantial. First of all, you had to get this approved by the transitional parliament and the transitional president. And effectively, what this court does is it does cede some judicial sovereignty um, to an international body. It does, it does allow the international body, which is the special criminal court, which certainly has a Central African component to it, but also has an international component. It does allow them a, a degree of judicial authority. The aspect that's been a real challenge is that the special criminal court doesn't have a police force. What kind of impact, if any, do you think this will have on the criminal justice system as a whole? Look, when I arrived after the coup, I, I'd come to realize that there hadn't been a criminal session in the Central African Republic for a number of years. The courts were completely gutted by the Bozizé regime uh, before the Seleka coup, and it took enormous amount of effort to get the, the courts, just the national courts, just up and running to where they are today, which is still by no means satisfactory in terms of, of where they need to be. Um, that's one of the many really positive attributes of the special criminal court. Number one, this court has a timeline. This court is not something that's going to just continue into perpetuity. Um, it has a 10-year mandate, and it, it might be able to be extended for another decade. But then after that, the Central Africans are going to have to address the, the remaining crimes on their own. But what this court is able to do is offer a huge degree of capacity building and training to these Central African magistrates and these Central African uh, court clerks uh, and, and the prosecutors. That's reporter Ricky Shryok speaking with Human Rights Watch's Central African director, Louis March. Shanghai has set a target to stop the spread of COVID-19 outside of quarantine areas by Wednesday, two sources close with the matter said. Ilan Rubens of Reuters reports. This would allow the city to further ease its lockdown and start returning to normal life as public frustrations grow. The city's new target of zero COVID at the community level by April 20th was communicated in a speech officially dated Saturday to the city's Communist Party and organizations such as schools, according to the sources who declined to be named as the information was not public. China's definition of zero COVID status at the community level means that no new cases emerge outside quarantined areas. The target will require officials to accelerate COVID testing and the transfer of positive cases to quarantine centers. Ending community level transmission has been a turning point for other Chinese localities that locked down, such as Shenzhen City, which last month reopened public transport and let businesses go back to work shortly after achieving that target. A speech by the party secretary of the city's Baoshan district described it as an order that had come as the city's situation reached a critical moment with growing public anxiety and food supply pressures. The Shanghai government and China's state council did not immediately respond to requests for comment. That's Ilan Rubens of Reuters. In other news, in South Africa, the premier of Sile Sekelala province says the death toll from floods in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province now stands at 443, with 63 people missing. In the Marian Hill neighborhood of Durban, police with sniffer dogs combed the debris while residents tried to clean up after the devastating flood. 
Sikalala said the rescue had been slowed by rains, which has left at least 400,000 people with no shelter, power or water, and are expected to continue into this week. Climate change activists are calling for investments to help communities around the world better prepare for worsening weather as Africa's southeastern coast is expected to see more violent storms and floods in the coming decades. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. The International Organization for Migration warns that the Horn of Africa is in the grip of the worst drought in decades, with an estimated 50 million people being severely affected in Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. The UN agency says tens of thousands of hectares of crops have been destroyed and 1.4 million livestock died last year due to the drought in Kenya alone. Reporter Andrew Omar discussed the fastest way to approach a crisis in these countries with Michelle Gavin, the Raf Bunch Senior Fellow for African Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. From 2011 to 2014, she was the United States Ambassador to Botswana and served concurrently as the United States representative to the Southern African Development Community. The most important thing is to ensure that there's an adequate response to these appeals for humanitarian aid. So there are agencies that know how to reach people uh, facing acute food insecurity, but they are under-resourced right now. And that's happening you know, because of donor fatigue. That's happening because uh, so much of the world is distracted by the terrible war in Ukraine. And so, you know, in ensuring that this crisis, its magnitude and its potential to get even worse is at the top of mind and agenda is kind of step one in sort of an immediate sense. But it's equally important that diplomats keep doing work to diffuse conflict in the parts of East Africa where, where this crisis is most acute because, you know, conflict has contributed to the situation, certainly, you know, most notably in Ethiopia, where some of the worst famine conditions can be directly attributed to civil conflict and denial of humanitarian aid as a weapon of war. And so it's really important that the diplomatic work to try and de-escalate conflict go hand in hand with a humanitarian response. Millions of people in Somalia are at risk of famine, with young children being the most vulnerable to the worsening drought. According to the World Food Program and Food and Agriculture Organization, Somalia is facing famine conditions at the perfect storm of poor rain, skyrocketing food prices, and a huge funding shortfalls leaves almost 40% of Somalis on the brink. What could be done to save Somalia from this catastrophe? You're absolutely right. It is a horrible stew of factors that have contributed to this situation. Everything from climate change and this uh, extraordinary set of failed rainy seasons to the locust crisis uh, a few years ago, and now inflation that uh, the whole world is experiencing, and of course, then the food shortages and increase in food prices. You know, a lot of Somalis have depended on assistance from the World Food Program. The World Food Program used to get more than half of its wheat from Ukraine. So the whole world is sort of readjusting to a set of new realities, and the consequences are being felt immediately by the Somali people. That's reporter Andrew Omar speaking with Michelle Gavin, the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for African Policy Studies in the Council on Foreign Relations.
According to new research, indigenous Australians experienced racism and unfair treatment during the catastrophic, quote, black summer, unquote, bushfires. It has found that First Nation communities suffered more than other groups because of failures by the authorities during the crisis. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Australia's black summer was its most intense bushfire season on records. Between July 2019 and March 2020, the blazes swept across 24 million hectares of land. 33 people died and thousands of homes were destroyed. New research released this week has found that large numbers of indigenous people suffered extreme trauma from both the fires and the emergency response. They were turned away from evacuation centres and ignored in disaster management plans. The study by the Australian National University's Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research blames deep-seated racism and the lingering consequences of European colonisation in 1788. The study's lead author, Beamy Williamson, says that racism was often a factor. Aboriginal people did go to the evacuation centres only to be turned away because the staff there said, we've helped enough of your people today, we've helped enough of your community members. When you speak to people who are directly affected and you ask them, why is it that these things are happening to you? All of them are connected to historical racism and colonisation. The most damaging instance that happens for people who have lived through these disasters and are still recovering is feeling like they've been forgotten. Aboriginal Australians make up about 3% of the Australian population. The university study asserts that disaster preparation plans also ignored the needs of First Nation communities. Williamson says there are scary similarities between the way First Nation communities were treated during the bushfires of 2019-2020 and this year's devastating flooding in eastern Australia. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinedua from washington wishing you a great day Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
When control of Hong Kong was transferred from Britain to the People's Republic of China in 1997, the PRC agreed to govern Hong Kong under the principle of one country, two systems. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, for 50 years the city would enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in foreign and defense affairs, and the laws currently in force in Hong Kong would remain basically unchanged. But as the U.S. State Department's recent Hong Kong Policy Act report shows, the PRC is tightening its vice-like grip on the city as the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing approaches. In the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, over the past year, the People's Republic of China has continued to dismantle Hong Kong's democratic institutions, placed unprecedented pressure on the judiciary and stifled academic, cultural and press freedoms. Hong Kong's freedoms are diminishing while the PRC tightens its rule. The report notes that over the past year, PRC authorities took actions that eliminated the ability of Hong Kong's pro-democracy opposition to play a meaningful role in governance. Peaceful political expression critical of Beijing with a local administration was criminalized. Sweeping changes to Hong Kong's electoral system blocked the participation of political groups not approved by Beijing and greatly diminished Hong Kong voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice. Among other acts of repression, authorities shut down two of Hong Kong's largest independent media outlets, Apple Daily and Stand News, and forced the closure of the June 4th Museum, which commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Using the 2020 national security law as a pretext, authorities filed charges against more than 160 individuals and organizations. This number includes activists and politicians detained in February 2021 for holding a primary election to elect candidates who would represent the pro-democracy camp in the Legislative Council election. Authorities also arrested and prosecuted activists for speech critical of the central or local governments or their policies, including for comments or posts on social media. Beijing will ultimately force many of the city's best and brightest to flee, tarnishing Hong Kong's reputation and weakening its competitiveness. A fully functioning civil society, rule of law and individual liberties form the bedrock on which vibrant societies grow, declared Secretary Blinken. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America, Washington, Papa, 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 Papa.